You are now tuned in to Saved and Woke. Yes, I am. What up, everybody? It's your boy, MSW. That's Mr. Saved and Woke, also known as Juan Enrique Toussaint. Before you watch the video, be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And all of my YouTube viewers, please hit that little bell to get notifications of all our new content. Now, without further ado, enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Today, I am joined by an old friend of mine, Brian Best. What's going on, everybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he is here to talk with me about a book that he put me onto called The Politics of Jesus by O'Berry M. Hendricks Jr. And I've got to say, I'm really, really excited. Before I go explaining more about the topic, I want to read the actual full title. So it says, The Politics of Jesus rediscovering the true revolutionary nature of the teachings of Jesus and how they have been corrupted. Sound like a really great title, man. Oh, yes, sir. Like, I was like, dang, I was serious. Because at first he just told me the politics of Jesus. And then when I saw the, the, uh, the full title, I was like, oh, snap. This sounds like it might have some realness in there. <laughs> so that is what we're going to be talking about. And basically, I mean, as you can probably surmise from the title, the book is talking about how the revolutionary nature of the good news that Jesus brought and the good news that Jesus is for us has been watered down over the centuries and millennia since um, Jesus' return to, to glory and how also we can return to that. Um, but before we do that... Gotta get to know this guy right here. You already know me, man. What are you talking about? Yeah, but we, we, we oh, gotta get oh, to know Oh, him. we. Yes, oh, okay, exactly. okay. Cool, cool. Gotcha. All right. So, Ant, just give us some, some background yeah. on you. Sure, sure. So, my name uh, is Bryant Best. Um, I actually go by the nickname Ant. This guy knows me by Ant because that was my nickname that I made for myself in, <laughs> in, in, in college, right? Um, grew up in Wilson. North Carolina, not too far from Chapel Hill, where we first met. Um, and Ant was my name because I just wanted to get away from like all of the bad experiences I had in middle school and high school. I got to college and I was like, man, I'm, I want to be different. I want to be cool. I'm going to call myself Ant. So like this is, and then to him, I'm still cool. Hopefully, I, I hope, right? Definitely. Um, but yeah, so um, just really passionate about, you know, being woke really passionate about being a Christian. And so, you know, I just want to say hats off to you. I really love your podcast. Appreciate it. Um, and when I found out about it, I was like, yo, I got to get involved. So um, I guess other things I would say about me um, while I'm here, um, well, I got to shout out my church. I go to Alfred Street Baptist Church, which is located in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a very, uh, they say historic church. It's over mm -hmm. 200 years old. Um, and I want to say... Oh, man, I don't want to misquote, but I'm um, just just a very, very historic church. Um, very, very involved in like supporting the local community. Um, just really, really great church. And I've learned so much since I've been there. 
Um, so all of those things just came to a head mm-hmm. when I found out about this opportunity I had to hop on. So thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. I was honored that you wanted to be on the show. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a couple things you said, or one thing you said, you're really, really into being saved and really, really into being woke. Right. So how did, how did that come about? How did you become saved and woke? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question, man. So I would say that I've always been like, I've always had the desire to be involved with social justice and I've grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up in North Carolina. So obviously, you know, being exposed to um, Christ and going to church, you know, it was just a part of your life, Mm -hmm. but I never really knew how to fit the two together until I started going to Alfred Street. And it's funny because I was writing blog posts at the time. And a couple of the posts were in alignment with what the pastor um, at Alfred Street was preaching. Um, and he's uh, the pastor of Alfred Street is uh, Reverend Dr. Howard John Wesley. And he was basically preaching on the topic that we're talking about today and how the message of Jesus has been watered down. It's been diluted. Um, and we have gotten so far away from it. And we need to try to turn around and get back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was really inspired by uh, Dr. Wesley's preaching and teaching. I've been very active in that church since then. Um, I actually am involved with the men's ministry there. I'm involved with uh, the Come As You Are ministry or the Kaya ministry. And I'm also involved with Hidden Halos, which is an effort to support um, uh, families uh, from low income backgrounds. Like, for example, during the, the holiday season, mm-hmm. uh, we're planning an event where we can help, you know, uh, mothers. Um, buy Christmas presents for their kids, right? So the church has always been active in the community, always been a huge, huge part of their work as activism. So this, it just really flows with that. So That's what's up. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for that, man. No problem. So now that we've got to know you, we can get into this topic. Okay. So originally, Aunt reached out to me to get on the podcast. And he was like, so what do you want to talk about? And I was like, well, what do you want to talk about? And the first thing he said, like, almost no hesitation, I want to talk about this book, The Politics of Jesus. It goes in line with everything you say in your podcast. And I was like, oh, really? Because, you know, a lot of people say or a lot of people like to think that what they're into is like, quote unquote, right in line with what I'm talking about. And I was like, <laughs> OK, I mean, I was like I was hopeful, but, you know, I also maintaining a level of skepticism. I was like, OK, well, let me let me check this book out first. Um, actually, he sent me a, a summary of the book first. And actually, even before that, we were just talking about it and everything he was saying. I was just like, wow, that's really good. Whoa, that's a that's a great point. Um, just in terms of the history of the of the church and not just the American church. Like when, when we're saying the church, we're meaning the church, like the early church, the first century church. Um, so this book really delves deep into that history and how the effects of that are or have manifested today so i was really 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 glad about it but like as you all can see it's a pretty thick book and brian and i had that conversation like maybe a couple weeks ago so i only had time to read a couple sections of it well a few sections of it i read the introduction which is pretty good pretty short and then three of the chapters. I read chapter three, which is how Jesus became meek and mild. Uh, chapter eight, which said the politics of Jesus. 
conservative or liberal. And in chapter nine, practicing the politics of Jesus. So we're gonna start with the introduction, which was basically how the author, um, O'Berry Hendricks Jr., how he came to know Jesus. How he, well, specifically how he, how he came to know Jesus the revolutionary and what I liked about that was because I kind of I related to that like pretty closely because yeah. he, he's from he's from the south too right if I remember correctly yeah and he said he was that he was introduced to the bland uh the watered the, down the, the bland watered down meek and mild Jesus that is so often preached especially in um mm. evangelical churches yeah, the today. one that's more so concerned about um, whether or not you're going to heaven than what in the world you're going through. Like, yeah, you know, what in this world yeah. you're going through. And uh, yeah, I, that really resonated with me too because there was always such a clear distinction like in the church growing up. Like, you know, it could be a lot of stuff going out in the world. It could be poverty. It could be oppression. It could be whatever. Um, but when we come to the church, it's like we don't talk about it. We don't discuss it. Mm -hmm. um, we just talk about being saved. And, you know, when all of this is over, like we're going to heaven. But like it was just such a like a, I, would, I wouldn't say a harrowing disconnect, but it was it was real because we grew up. Well, I grew up poor. So like the, the people in the Bible that we were speaking about, they were poor and like needed God to come in and save them mm -hmm. and like whatever. Like that was us. And like we, it was so weird how we wouldn't ever truly acknowledge like what is going on with this disconnect in our world. So um, I really resonated with that point that he made as well. That's what's up. Like for me, I know we struggle financially, but in terms of living in poverty, that I didn't really have that like that close of an experience with it. But being from a mixed heritage, like I'm, my father is Puerto Rican and my mother is black. One thing that always stuck out to me, even as a kid, I wasn't always like super questioning about it in terms of like, well, why is things like this? Or why is it like this? Well, why do you believe? But I would just, I would just notice, like we were always talking about how Jesus came to save the world mm -hmm. and how Jesus loved everybody. God loves everybody. Yeah. But like in my church, there was only black people. Mm. Okay. Um, and Talk then, about it. <laughs> and then I would see white churches and then like the Bible. And then when I began to read the Bible for myself, I'm seeing like Paul clearly stated there is now no longer Greek, nor Jew, nor barbarian, nor Scythian, um, no more poor, nor rich. And I was like, well, there's clearly black and white church. <laughs> you know, there's Hispanic church. Um, there is like even um, seeing like, like a lot of like Asian churches too. And now even if something, even if, a church is quote unquote mixed for the most part. And I'm not saying all of them for the most part, I've seen that those mixed churches usually have a white pastor. I've never, I haven't seen a lot of yeah. black pastors with racially or ethnically mixed congregations. I'm like, yo, why mm -hmm. is that? And like, like have you, you said, also noticed, cause I noticed this too. Like I feel like the churches that are more diverse tend to be uh, either non-denominational well, they tend to have a denomination that's a little bit more um, non-traditional, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so, like, 
for example, if I've seen a church and it's like diverse, it might be like some type of universal universalist kind of approach to Christianity or mm-hmm. something along those lines or something where it's not like, you know, um, Protestant or evangelical or Pentecostal or Baptist. It's usually something where it's like, I don't know. Have you seen that? or? Yeah, it's like, so it's also like when you see that mixing of people in a quote-unquote church setting, it's like in those like universalist settings that's kind of like, man, I'm like, do y'all even really know the gospel? It's like, yo, these people have a questionable, have questionable theology. I was like, but they're mixing mm-hmm. and advocating for, mm-hmm. for social justice in a way that the people of God who, you know, yeah. supposedly serve this righteous king um, are not or seem not to be. Yeah, I, I haven't had too much experience with universalists. I do know, I did see this one uh, movie on Netflix called Come Sunday where it was this like super conservative pastor who basically preached about hellfire and brimstone. Like mm-hmm. if you, you know, you do one thing wrong, you're going to hell forever kind of thing. Um, he kind of like reverse roles and it was interesting because I think there was a number of things happened in his life like um, his uncle or some member of his family died without ever coming to Christ and I think that that really affected him because he felt responsible for like not getting that person saved mm-hmm. and I think uh, there may have been other things in his life but eventually he became one of those like universal type people where he was still preaching um but he was just preaching a message of just like everybody getting into heaven. So I mean, it's the whole the whole universalism thing, man. It's interesting because oh, the inclusivity thing. The inclusivity thing, yeah. right? Because I mean, there's definitely you know aspects of it where you could you could kind of see where people are going. Um, but yeah, no, it's, but we 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 got to get into the politics of Jesus, yeah, man. Yeah, we, yeah. We definitely got to tackle this issue, man. Yeah, so. and before we continue, just off the front just to you know clear things up neither myself nor Ant here are theologians oh know? yeah that's very important yeah i mean i am a minister at my church but i don't you know i have not formally studied in any sort of seminary context or anything like that i've just studied the word on my own i've studied in the leadership of my spiritual my spiritual parents my pastors um and so that's where, you know, a lot of my spiritual and biblical knowledge comes from. And, of course, you know, I read books like this. Um, and and he already, Aunt already shared how he became to, you know, came to study the Bible. But we're just, we're two guys who are, led passionate, by God. Yeah, who are led by God, who are passionate about Jesus and passionate about social justice. And we are talking about it right now in the context of this book here, The Politics of Jesus. So we're just gonna, we're gonna chop it up and see what this book had in it and how we both, what we both got from it. So we talked about the introduction mainly in terms of how we both related to it. Now I wanna talk about the first section that I read, mm-hmm. which was how Jesus became meek and mild. And what I'll do, I'll start first because I want to hear what you have to say about this. Okay. But one thing that I really thought was, I found very interesting when he was just answering, he was like, well, how, if, if Jesus is this political revolutionary, which in the re- which in the introduction he basically establishes, then how did he become this turned in, well, how did he get turned into this meek and mild, this really passive 
non-assertive figure. And he basically goes back all the way to, like we said, the early, early church. This is like Jesus is has been crucified. He's risen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the gospel is being spread throughout the nations surrounding Israel. And one of the reasons that Jesus was or that the, Jesus was pacified, so to speak, was because the early Christians who have like they, they believed Jesus, but they were also acutely aware of like, yo, man, the Romans killed Jesus. Yeah. Like, yeah, like they definitely killed him. Like, yeah. We believe he's our God and everything. But like, how can we? They were they were they were really struggling to reconcile their idea of you know mm -hmm. their savior mm -hmm. with the fact that he was killed by Rome, yeah. and this is before the Bible was compiled. This is like they had not they didn't have access to the Gospels, which was written like I think half a century or more after Jesus went back to glory, um, and they definitely didn't have um, Paul's writings either which basically confirmed that Jesus always, like it was always in the plan for Jesus to be crucified. Like the word, like we know now we can just read, a, pick up our Bible and read, you know, the Lamb of God was slain from the foundations of the earth. It was like, oh, it was always in the plan for Jesus to be crucified. They didn't know that. Yeah. So they kind of came up with this idea of like, oh, well, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus did talk about loving your neighbor and all that stuff. So we're just gotta be meek and mild and just endure whatever is thrown at us yeah um just like our savior did because um in the trial he also didn't say anything mm -hmm. uh he never he didn't even he didn't even cry out when he was being beaten mm -hmm. and so they kind of was like okay well i guess i guess that's the character of our of our christ so that's the character mm -hmm. that we should take on as well and it wasn't until later when they received paul's letters when they got to read the gospels for themselves and they were like oh okay so this was part of his plan and like his death and his crucifixion was his choice and not something that he was mm -hmm. victimized by yeah. basically yeah and i think one of the the powerful things about this book that it pieces together for me is that you know oppression is a part of life it's a part of the world and it's a sad reality it's an unfortunate reality um, but you got to think if like Jesus walked this earth, he never did anything wrong to anybody, never lied, cheat, st cheated, stole anything. And he was still um, not just crucified, but the way in which he was crucified mm -hmm. were like crowds who once shouted his name and said, Hosanna, like save us. Were the same crowds that shouted crucify him. And the person who was responsible for crucifying him said i find no fault in him at all like if you really like like really try to wrestle with that and unpack that you really realize that if you're going to follow in the footsteps of christ you are going to have that extra um you're going to have to have that extra gear inside of you mm -hmm. to be willing to not necessarily be meek and mild but be strong and courageous mm -hmm. to stand in the face of adversity to stand in the face of evil to stand in the face of political and oppressive domination and say, you know what, I'm going to do the right thing because that's what my Lord would have done in this situation. And it's really powerful when you think about it in that context. Um, but I do want to talk about um, what you, what you, I want to piggyback off what you're saying about the meek and mild thing. 
Oh yeah, the second part. So that was one reason. Oh, that, okay. that was one thing that led to the whole meek and mild perception yeah. of Christ, and and it's gonna give us the other piece. Yeah. So okay. the other piece is the Constantinian uh, captivity of Christianity, and what I mean by that, um, it's referenced in the book, The Politics of Jesus. Check it out if you get a chance. Um, but essentially, there was a shift in culture. There was a shift and religious attitudes and it was coerced right there was a there was a roman emperor his name was constantine and constantine had a dream that uh he would win this big battle this big war that he was in by the symbols um chi and rho and when you put the symbols chi and rho together that spells christ so he said by Christ, I will win this victory. Okay, and before you explain what happens after that, how did he treat Christians before that? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. So, basically, uh, Romans treated Christians very harshly. They didn't respect them, didn't like them. Um, they would um, they would actually burn them for sport. Yep. Right? So, it was a very, very bad situation to be a Christian before uh, the Constantinian captivity happened. Yeah, and in terms of like just the horror, one thing I do remember from the book, I don't want to just, I'm not saying this to gross people out, but we're, I'm just saying this to just so you can understand the stark contrast that happens um, in history, the shift that's taken place. So like before, like these emperors, I think they would say he mentioned Emperor Nero of Rome used Christians as torches to light paths. Yeah. So he would... They burned them. Yeah, they... Like, he's... Uh, not just burn them, but, like, burn them and put them on display so that people could see them. And so, then, Constantine, who at this time is not emperor yet, but he's a general, mm -hmm. and eventually becomes emperor. But at this point, he's gen he's general. He has the vision of Chi and Rho, which is the first two letters of Christ in... Rome? Greek? Yeah. Maybe. Greek, yeah, Greek letters. <laughs> we'll go with that. Like I <laughs> said, we're not theologians. <laughs> we're good book summarizers. We can summarize yeah, a book I for know. you. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so essentially, um, once he won the war and became emperor, he made everyone convert to Christianity. So, like, whether you believed in it or not, guess what? You have to. If you don't, you're in big trouble because that means you're going against the emperor, which means you got to die. So when he he basically instituted Christianity, which in and of itself is a form of oppression, right? It goes against one of the very basic tenets of the Bible, which is with which is that you have free will to choose whether or not you wish to follow God. And this guy just went totally against that to his own benefit, converting so many people. Um, yeah, and before you go, my, my bad, before you go continue, ahead. it's like, that just made me think about, like, Jesus, when he was talking to people, oftentimes it said, you know, after Jesus preached, you know, the multitudes of people that were following him believed on him after they heard him speak. But of course, like the Pharisees and the, the, the people in power, they did not believe in him. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, knowing that, because he, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of knowledge without measure, he never at once like forced anybody or put somebody in a chokehold. It was like, you know, you need to believe in me. Yeah. I'm God. He never did like extra miracles to convince people. He just did what he was going to yeah. do. He healed the people he was going to heal. He cast out the demons he was going to cast out. And then if people believed in him, great. Yeah. If not... Right. I'm still God and we're going to keep it moving. Exactly. Exactly. And so 
um, with the Constantinian captivity of Christianity and forcing everybody to convert over Christianity. Um, it was just a bad situation. Not only did it force people to convert to something that they may or may not have believed in, um, but there's also this, uh, this added kind of, I don't want to call it, I want to be careful here. So basically before, uh, before Christ left, like there weren't necessarily different levels or different hierarchies to the church, mm -hmm. right? It was just, everyone came in to worship and serve God, you know, but because of the Constantinian captivity of Christianity, then there became, there it beget these kind of hierarchies in the church. So then that's when you started having people like um, bishops. Um, this is when you started having people like reverends, right? And you, you start creating these levels of hierarchy and Constantine put himself at the head. Now, one of the things that was startling to me in the book, you know, he, he made everybody else convert to Christianity, but you know, when he got baptized, yeah, he said uh, it was like right before he died, basically on his deathbed. Yeah. So this guy who is responsible for converting all of these people to Christianity against their will and creating these hierarchies in the church and changing mm -hmm. the structure of the the church that we know and love today, mm -hmm. he didn't even get baptized. Who was on his deathbed? Yeah, and one thing I want to clear up in case like some people are listening. So when we say creating hierarchy. Um, we're not saying that, well, it kind of makes me think, he made a point to clarify the the hierarchy made by Constantine with individuals and the hierarchy, the spiritual hierarchy of, I guess, spiritual functions of the spiritual gifts that God gives the world, which is apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So there is a, yeah. there's a hierarchy of function, but there's not a hierarchy of person or individual like yes you are an apostle but are you more than your members no and he even goes to say like jesus called his disciples he said you're not my servants you are my friends but which is placing like us equal with him with christ mm -hmm. um but here we have constantine immediately upon his quote-unquote conversion setting himself as the head and then of course having this hierarchical structure mm, i can't imagine what it would have been like to be a person who would have been forced into christianity like i think the thing that draws me closer to god and helps my relationship with god grow is the fact that god gives me space to be me you know what i mean like there i'm you know i'm not perfect today i wasn't perfect last year whenever you know so the fact that God loves me enough to allow me to grow in my walk with him, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the love of God that's what draws people in. Yeah. Not forcing people and scaring them like what Constantine did. Exactly. And so And what people today try to do still. Exactly. Right? So like the that's another thing I love about the book. Like when you read it and you dive deep into this long history, um, this socio political religious history, you find out that there's actually there's nothing new under the sun. True. You, you know, yeah, definitely. You know, like there's a lot of stuff there that is happening today still. And it kind of, for me, helps me kind of understand the social political climate that we're in today. Yeah. And actually, that's a perfect segue into the next chapter that I read, which was the policy of Jesus. Are they conservative or liberal? And what was great to me was his definition of conservatism 
and liberalism. I learned so much about it. And one thing that I guess that we're probably going to touch on later is that like, it's nothing like conservatism and liberalism is nothing new. Like it might not have been called by those particular names, but it was, it basically had the same function in theirs in any Western society. Definitely. There's always been a, con a conservative political side and a more liberal political side. Um, so could you, well, do you remember what he said about like the definition of what, what, what the purpose of the con of conservative parties throughout all of history, not just the, mm -hmm. throughout all of history, what, what their focus is? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of them. I think he did reference a book written by um, Russell Kirk in 1953 i believe it was called the conservative mind potentially but it lays out these six key points that have been really um kind of like the um the philosophical underpinning of like conservative politics and really giving them like a strong base to kind of go off of that's mm -hmm. that's his quote not mine so don't come after me for that but that's that that's the book that he referenced um I know one of the one of the things that really stood out to me was this concept of kind of like a benign neglect, right? And, oh, and yeah. he didn't he didn't exactly use that exact word, but basically this idea that um, look, there's poverty, there's all this tough stuff going on in the world, but at the end of the day, it's survival of the fittest. So it's actually good for society. It's good for it's basically good for society for us to have this hard stuff because it's gonna. It's going to help those people who have it within them to rise to the top, to overcome, and then I guess to become part of the republic that mm -hmm. then the rest of the nation then serves. Yeah. Right? And so, um, you know, very, very interesting. I think um, another thing that stood out to me as I was reading that chapter, uh, it, actually, I think it was a couple of chapters, but the difference between conservative and being liberal um there have been, you know, past politicians and current politicians, um, presidents, what have you, um, that have invoked the word of God to back up what they're saying. Or they say Not even the word of God. They just say Jesus or something. <laughs> exactly, right? And it's like, on one hand, depending on what the topic is, you can kind of understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like, we have to acknowledge that politics is, is funded. You know what I mean? Like you're not rising to a very prominent level of politics unless you are backed by big dollars. Now, that could come from the people, yeah. but it could also come from corporations. And when you're beholden to, you know, a certain level, a certain type of constituent, that's going to influence um, some of the things that you can and cannot say, can or cannot talk about. Um, and the thing that really resonates with me is that you can't serve two masters. You know what I mean? So it's it's almost like one of the arguments that um, Dr. Hendricks made in his book is that neither conservative politics nor liberal politics is truly Jesus's politics because Jesus politics are guided by a set of principles that neither one of those can adhere to because they're tainted by the influence of, of money. Of the, yeah, of the world and of of ideologies that are just not in line with the Bible, not in line with what Jesus taught us. And one thing that I thought was huge 
He said that a lot of people confuse moral or spiritual conservatism with political conservatism. So like if somebody is a political conservative, they will be assumed to also be, you know, spiritually righteous. They'll be assumed to be a Christian. Whereas, and they also can um, confuse um, social liberalism with like freely making um, just an, an egalitarian, you know, as possible um, society with moral liberalism, like just like moral looseness, like you'll just do whatever. If you're all, if you are a spirit, if you are a, um, a social liberal, they automatically assume that you're also a moral, ethical, and spiritual, spiritually loose as well, which is not the case. And we can see basically like, to put it as simple as possible, he was basically saying that the politics of Jesus simply, like I said, is the, you know, is made up of moral and spiritual conservatism. And when I always say, I like to use words, you know, intentionally, when I say conservatism, like what are you conserving? Conserving what? Conserving conserving the, the righteousness that God laid out, that God had given his people, you know, in, in the Old Testament and that Jesus had t even tightened up on um, when he came. So that's what we're conserving. We're not conserving the status quo, which is what most conservative parties do. Um, but we're conserving the righteousness. We're conserving the statutes. We're conserving the will of God in the earth with and by, by um, with the the liberal just dispensation of justice and equality for all. So yeah, morally conservative, spiritually conservative, but socially liberal, like make all of the benefits of society as equally available to everyone as possible because there's no there's no partiality in Christ. Right, right, right. And and you know, that really for me, um triggers the uh political strategies of Jesus, which I know was another chapter in the book. Um because Jesus did exactly that. Like he he stood up against um institutions of power when they were wrong. Like he chased the money changers out of the den. Mm -hmm. You know, um they didn't like him for that. But w in every opportunity he had to stand against leaders or people in power who were oppressing people or taking advantage of people, uh, he definitely did so. Um and so I think so the book lays out seven different political strategies that Jesus had. Um, and they really resonated with me. So I wanted to write them down to make sure I shared them. Um, the first was treat the people as holy, which means that you basically, whenever you can provide for somebody, you will. And whenever uh, you put in a position to forgive someone, you should always try to do that. Um, the second one was give a voice to the voiceless which means disrupt injustice even in high places. The third was expose the working of oppression. Um, I really like this one because to me, it was just kind of talking about how Jesus painted with broad strokes to reveal what was hidden in plain sight. There were a lot of people um, that were oppressed that Jesus preached to that didn't fully understand the context of their oppression um, 
and he just gave it to him in a in a smooth little parable. He just snuck it in there and he just let it, you know, mm-hmm. kind of marinate. You know, there were even sometimes where Jesus would explain things to his disciples in the form of a parable and it and really they didn't, they didn't get it, right? And it's just so, something about that is so powerful. It mm-hmm. resonates so deeply with me. Um that it's a journey to understand Christ. It's a journey to understand mm-hmm how we can make a difference in the world and encourage others to make a difference. Um, calling a demon by name was something that really stood out. Yeah. Um, he referenced um, a very important figure. If you don't know this person, you should uh, look him up. Uh, but Franz Fanon and his research on self-destructive behavior. Um, and basically, uh, it's just a situation where if people cannot protect the people that they're supposed to be able to protect or if there's some type of situation that's causing them to not be in alignment with who they believe themselves to be, mm-hmm. they might engage in self-destructive behaviors. Um, and I believe mm-hmm. there is an example in the Bible, Mark chapter 5, where this situation happened, itself, happened as well. Um, and really quickly, I'm just going to go through the last three. Save your anger for the mistreatment of others. Take blows without returning them. And don't just explain the alternative, but show it. And I think that these three are um, kind of self-explanatory, but I mean, what do you want to add? Oh, yeah. So I was actually going to just ask you, like, maybe starting with the, the first list mm-hmm. or the first one on the list where you said, treat the people as holy. So we're saying that this is one of his tactics. Mm-hmm. So can you think of an example that either um, Dr. Hendricks um, shared in the book or one that you just know? Mm-hmm. From your own readings mm-hmm. of Jesus treating yeah. the people as holy, yeah, and this it is also political too because we know that Jesus um, healed on the Sabbath, like it was a law, mm-hmm. like you're not okay. supposed to do this, but Jesus mm-hmm. went and did it anyway. Why? Because you're supposed to put the gospel of Jesus above the the law, right? And it, and it there's a um. There is a person in my church, and I and I don't exactly remember the name. I know my pastor shouted him out. They're the person who came up with this, and he shares it with our church often. But it's basically, um, if how, how does it go? If what is it? If your if God isn't bigger than your Bible then you've made your Bible your God. Hmm. Um, and I I definitely believe this to be true. Like the Bible is in some ways a book of laws. Um, but Jesus already said, you know, you got them all down if you do what? If you, if you love your love neighbor. God, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm-hmm. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Exactly. And to go along with that, yeah. in terms of like, not making the Bible bigger than God mm-hmm. himself. Like uh, his disciples one time, they went out and they were, I think they were like gleaning wheat from the field because they were, they were hungry and it was the Sabbath day. And then some Pharisees were like, yo, what's, what's up with your, what's up with your people, man? Like, yeah. why are they working on the Sabbath? Um, and Jesus said the Sabbath was not, <clears throat> man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was for man. So the Sabbath was, was set aside was was created to for the benefit and for 
I guess the spiritual advancement, the spiritual development, just for the good of man. We're, we were not created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually serving us by following it. And also, and like he was just saying that um, Dr. Hendricks actually says that just legalistic adherence to biblical principles, um, like what the Pharisees were trying to push on the disciples, leads not to freedom in God, but being like leads to religious oppression, mm. basically. Yeah. Um, and we just have to be guided not just by the written word, but also mm -hmm. by um, God's righteousness, His grace, mm -hmm. and His love. Right, right. Because there was no like they were gonna like otherwise they were gonna let them starve. <laughs> yeah, they were gonna let them starve and be like, yeah. "Oh, this is sad, but I can't do anything about it." Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, and that's that's another heavy point that I I'm glad I go to Alfred Street and I get the chance to listen to Doctor. Shout out to the church, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's because they really do hit on um, the love that we're supposed to have for our fellow human being. Like our pastor recently preached a sermon called "Do You See Her," right? Where he talked about. Basically, if I can sum it up like this. About the one with issue of blood. Um, I can't remember the exact biblical reference, but it was basically about um, the, the immigration policies that mm -hmm. separated children from their fam from their parents. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's like, like, dog, like, really? <laughs> like, these, like, these are children, you know, like we have to we have to protect. We have to see other people as human beings. Right. Um, and that is something that, you know, um, we it, it, it's 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 not always been there in the policies. It's not always been there in the laws like like you and I at some point in America, we were just considered three fifths of a person mm -hmm. that was codified. Yeah. Like our in humanity, our, our lack of humanness was written into a law somewhere and somebody mm -hmm. used it to kind of like have us as, as property you know what i mean yeah so like i mean that's just that's just the that's just the reality it's an unfortunate reality um but there are opportunities to to fix that and to change that and i'm grateful for the people who do step up who have these types of conversations yeah for people who are you know protests for people who are policymakers, lawmakers who who have the same kind of mindset because it's, it's very much needed if we are going to have an equal and just or equitable and just society yeah and one thing that i really like and i guess will be our last point that we hit on for today's episode and is kind of something that we've already mentioned in terms of jesus's politics jesus's political ideology not being necessarily conservative or liberal one thing that i do appreciate about this book is that he is very thorough in his descriptions of conservatism and liberalism and also highly and equally critical of both sides so he'll he tells you he'll he'll oh, list yeah. out all the all the all the things that's wrong with with being conservative um, or with conservatism, and also where liberalism has missed it in a big way. Yeah. Because um, like I feel like a lot of saved and woke people, like we kind of try and just like lean to like the liberal side of 
of politics now and like part of this politics of like yo like part of my desire to start this podcast is to be like whoa 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 i mean yeah there's some good stuff on on both sides but we need to make sure that we're following the the word of god and making sure that let's whatever whatever candidate whatever policy whether it's from came from a conservative think tank or a liberal one like is it in line with with Christ, and there is one quote in particular that comes to mind. You got a quote for? Oh yes, I got a oh, quote. Oh snap! I had, to, I had to get one in there. Like if I had it my way, really, I would have just been reading quotes from the book. The whole time. <laughs> but I decided to spare you all that, and just read this one here. So I believe this one is at the end of chapter eight, which was entitled um, "The Politics of Jesus." conservative or liberal yeah it's at the very end it says ultimately we must transcend the categories of liberal and conservative to reclaim the politics of jesus we must reject the aspects of each each meaning liberalism or conservatism that contradict jesus's politics and embrace those things that are in accord with his gospel we must embrace conservatism's willingness to speak its faith and the transformational power of that witness. And we must lay claim to liberalism's care for the poor and weak and its insistence on equity and justice, just like Jesus laid out. Um, so, and there, like, there, there is no outright banning of one or the other. It's just like, okay, yeah, those liberalism and conservatism one they're not they're, they're not religions they are just different ways of thinking of the world political, exactly yeah. of, of, of addressing political realities is how you think politically and we as believers should support whichever one of those is most in line um, with the gospel and we should be tr working to create a society mm -hmm. in which it's not staunchly conservative or staunchly liberal but is completely and totally the kingdom of god and you know what i think the woke part of that is i think the woke part is acknowledging that on certain issues it could be one side and then on other issues it could be the other side mm -hmm. you know because both sides have their main talking points one might be right on um you know the economy and then another one might be right on immigration or whatever the topics are. Yeah. Um, but it's always about, you know, if you can get some some justice in there, if you can get some mercy in there, if you can get some love in there, you know, just really, really um, advocating for what um, Jesus called the least of these. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we're called yep. to do as people who are saved and woke. Um, there, are, there are prophets in the Bible. Um, Ezekiel is one. Uh, Amos is another, and there's plenty of others who who had wealth, right? But mm -hmm. they still advocated for the poor, right? And and that's another thing. I don't necessarily think that you um, have to necessarily not have aspirations of wanting financial security and stability for mm -hmm. yourself in order to engage in this work. Like, it, it is possible. Don't let anyone tell you that it's not possible, that you have to um, necessarily uh, live your entire life a certain way just because you want to serve Christ and just because you want to give back. It's not necessarily true at all. Yeah, and one thing before you hit your last point that he hits on is that 
who was saying if if we were to really or follow the teachings of Christ, either the people in power would and the people who with influence and people with wealth would they would either be brought out of those positions mm-hmm. or if they were to stay, they should conduct themselves very very differently. And that's that last one. That's what I think should that that's my vision for society is like okay you know if you're gonna say that you are a christian sir or madam (laughs) yeah then truly act it out like support policy support uh try to pass bills that are in line with the word of god instead of just trying to use this conservative lingo and like jedi mind trick people into thinking that you're a believer you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what were you about to say, man? Oh, no, I mean, I, you know, I pretty much shared what I had to share. I think, um, you know, the book was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, if you, like I said, if you get a chance, check it out. It's called The Politics of Jesus by Aubrey Hendricks. Um, phenomenal writer. Really enjoyed it. Yes. Um, very similar to like the the new Jim Crow and the way it was written. Wouldn't you agree? Like it's exactly, very, yeah. Like, it's very informative. It's very informative. Yeah, yeah. Like so, I've talked about the new Jim Crow on this podcast before, and so after the Bible, I would say probably the new Jim Crow and the politics of Jesus. Those are two books that have just completely opened my mind in terms of the 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 history of the. Mm-hmm political framework of our of our nation and now with the politics of jesus the political and spiritual and religious Mm -hmm. history that is still have an effect an effect today um so we are definitely going to have a follow-up to this talk because there's so so much in this book that we just Mm -hmm. really we just got just touch the touch, surface. Just touch the surface with it. So next time, um, we're going to have all of our notes together. We're going to get those really, really good talking points that we want to get to. It's like, I don't know if y'all can see it, but I folded the pages. Every place there was something that I thought was great. And I don't know if you can tell, but right here, in this chapter right here, I folded basically every page. So <laughs> we're going to get our thoughts together and come back with the season finale of or the finale episode of season two, which will be the part two of our discussion of the politics of Jesus. We're going to flesh it out and get into some specific and really, really eye-opening things that Dr. Hendricks um, has to share or had to share about the political and religious scheme of things in America. But as with every episode, we're going to end how we should begin all things, which is seeking God um, and asking for for his intervention. So go with God with me. Lord God, we thank you again for this podcast. Thank you for this great conversation. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for bringing life to the conversation between myself and Brian, Lord. We just pray that, that the ears that were listening were hearing, Lord God. I pray that the seeds that we have sown, Lord God, find good soil in people's hearts and people's minds, Lord God. And I pray that they won't just hear it and leave it here, but that they'll continue to think on it, that they'll continue to um, walk with you and allow you to 
to clear up everything that has been muddied, everything that has been clouded by the enemy, by politicians purposefully trying to meld their political aspirations with the truth of the gospel. Um, I just pray, Lord God, that you'll make everything that was done in darkness, bring it out into light. I pray that people will know clearly and surely what is righteous and what is not, what is gracious, what is not, what is loving, and what is not. And in addition to that, Lord God, once we come into this knowledge and once we come into understanding, Lord, show us how to make our homes, our communities, our cities, states, nation, and world reflect your will for us, Lord God, that your, that your will help us to enact your will on earth, Lord God, um, as it is in heaven, in Jesus' name. And God, we just ask that you will continue to bless us and, and guide us as we try to be more and more like you every day. Um, please, God, use uh, this episode um, to help people not to tear anyone down, not to distort your word. Um, and we, we just really just pray over this episode um, that it could be used for your goodness um, and continue to ask for your grace and mercy over us as your children. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Appreciate it, Brian. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Uh -huh. This was wonderful. Definitely. All right. Saved and woke. <laughs> Thank you for watching this episode of the Saved and Woke podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and sign up for notifications to keep up with all of our new content. As always, you can keep up with me personally at Mr. Underscore Save and Woke on Instagram and Twitter. And you can now keep up with the show on Instagram at Saved and Woke. That does it for today. Until next time, keep the faith and stay woke. Thank you.